This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Laden Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. It is Saturday. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C. We're delighted and honored to be joined by John Yu. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Emanuel S. Heller Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley School of Law, and a visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute. John Yu has served in all three branches of government. He was an official in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he worked on national security and terrorism issues after the September 11 attacks. And John has been a law clerk for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and U.S. Court of Appeals Judge Lawrence Silberman. And without any further delay, welcome, John, and a good morning to you. Welcome, John. Oh, it's great to be with you guys again. Happy 4th of July. Indeed, a happy 4th of (laughs) July to you as well. Well, John, a great many of our fellow Americans have expressed serious concerns about the Biden administration's approach to governance, its progressive agenda, and the numerous attempts to ignore the U.S. Constitution. President Biden's critics have stated that his brazen progressive agenda is undermining first principles and subverting the rule of law. The Wall Street Journal's Gerard Baker in his recent piece titled The Supreme Court Declares Independence writes, and I quote, The popular rebellion against the cultural left that has seized so many of the institutions of American life has enjoyed mixed success at the political level. But since that hegemony was established in large part through half a century of grotesque judicial overreach, it was likely to be truly overturned only by a judiciary that would finally move to substitute restraint for activism, unquote. And John, in a piece that you co-authored with Robert Delahanty titled The Supreme Court's three ringing blows for liberty, you write, and I quote, Just before this 4th of July weekend, the United States Supreme Court struck three ringing blows for American liberty. It upheld freedom of speech. It affirmed that the power of the purse belongs to Congress, not the president, and it forbade racial discrimination by the government. Americans should applaud these decisions and the constitutional order that produced them, unquote. Uh, we would like to take a few moments to examine these rulings, and let us start with the freedom of speech. Uh, John, the Supreme Court ruled in favor of a Colorado website designer who operated a business as a designer of customized websites to all customers, including LGBTQ persons. But she stated that she would not design websites that celebrated matters contrary to her Christian convictions, including, but not limited to, same-sex marriage. In his opinion for the Supreme Court, Justice Neil Gorsuch concluded that the state could not go so far as to compel Americans to espouse opinions contrary to their own, thus protecting the freedom of speech. Uh, John, could you kindly share with us your thoughts about the Supreme Court's ruling and its significance? 
Well, it's great to be with you both, and I'm, I'm happy to come and talk about these opinions and the new book of mine, a Politically Inc Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court, which talks about uh, these broader trends within which this case, it's called 303 Creative, sits. And one way to understand what the court said is that you know, the government has the right to say, if you're going to open a business, uh, you have to let everybody come in. You can't say... I'm only oper operating this hotel for Republicans, or I'm only operating this hotel for Democrats. But at some point, that stops and your right of freedom of conscience begins. And the fundamental principle there is that the government can't censor our speech. It also can't make us speak. The funny thing is your right to free speech also means you have the right to be silent, that the government can't turn you for example, into like an advertising board for the things that the government thinks it's best. And so in this case, the court, I think, took that simple principle that you have the right to speak, but you also have the right not to speak based on what you think is right and wrong, your beliefs, and applied it against all of these pro-diversity laws that are going forward at the state level. Colorado's was just the most egregious which said, you know, you're, you know, Colorado basically tried to say you don't have a right to protest against or to refuse to express views about gay marriage. You have to approve gay marriage. And whether you think that view is right or wrong, that's up to each of us to decide, not the government to force it upon us. And so you know, one uh, second way to think about what the court's been doing in this case and other cases is that it's restoring clear, common sense principles to the Constitution. They're easy to understand. I think everybody can understand that you have the right to say what you think, and you don't have to carry the government's message. You don't have to agree with the government if you don't want to. Against, I think, these very complicated, overly sophisticated justifications offered by the progressive left to try to depart from straightforward, basic, fundamental constitutional principles. Right. And John, you said it, common sense. And this Supreme Court ruling is in line with the public opinion. Uh, namely, according to the Pew Research Survey conducted in April, 60% of Americans think that business owners should not have to provide services if it might signal support for beliefs on LGBT issues that they oppose. And here it is. It's a common sense if 60% of Americans think the same way. Exactly. In fact, I think you're going to see in a lot of these cases uh, that what the court's actually doing, that, that it's such clear common sense. Most Americans agree with them when they understand the facts of the case. And that what's been going on is you have these progressives, in this case, people who elevate diversity over everything. In other cases, people who elevate climate change over everything, trying to override the safeguards that our constitution creates. And, and, and we celebrated just, right, just two days ago on July 4th for individual liberty, for freedom of thought and freedom of conscience and the right to be treated as individuals. Indeed, uh, John, on June 29, 2023, the U.S. Supreme Court handed down a major ruling on affirmative action and struck down affirmative action programs at the University of North Carolina and Harvard. In a 6-3 decision, the Supreme Court rejected the use of race as a factor in college admissions as a violation of the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. And Chief Justice John Roberts wrote in the majority opinion that a benefit to a student 
student who overcame racial discrimination, for example, must be tied to that student's courage and determination. And Justice Clarence Thomas argued in his concurrence that previous Supreme Court decisions upholding affirmative action allowed universities to discriminate against applicants in their admissions process. And I would like to relay a brief excerpt from his concurrence. I quote, under our Constitution, race is irrelevant, as the court acknowledges. In fact, all racial categories that are little more than stereotypes suggesting that immutable characteristics somehow conclusively determine a person's ideology, beliefs, and abilities, of course, that is false, he wrote. And he also states, the court must adhere to the promise of equality under the law declared by the Declaration of Independence and codified by the 14th Amendment, unquote. John, from your vantage point, how significant is this ruling? And will elite universities such as Harvard find ways around this ruling in order to perpetuate a system that denies meritocracy for failed social experiments? I think this is one of the most important opinions the Supreme Court issued has issued in the last 50 years. It's on a par with last year's, I think we talked about the Dobbs case that returned abortion back to the states and overruled Roe versus Wade. Here, we have just ended another Hmm. terrible 50-year experiment imposed on us by the Supreme Court, I'm afraid, in a case called Bakke, which allowed the use of race in college admissions. Hmm. One thing that uh, Justice Thomas's concurrence says, and the majority opinion also echoes, is that our constitution is colorblind, that uh, we are all individuals. We're not to be classified as members of racial groups. And this principle comes all the way from the founding of the country that we celebrated two days ago, from the Declaration of Independence. And it goes through to the Civil War and through Reconstruction, and through Brown versus Board of Education, and through the Civil Rights Movement. And that principle has been deviated from, sadly, in our country. And the court says every time we've done that, it's been a disaster, from upholding slavery right before the Civil War in a case called Dred Scott, to allowing segregation in the Deep South in Plessy versus Ferguson. And the court says this is the third time we allowed it using race and higher education, we're going to end that exception because of all the harm that occurs when the government takes account of race. And then the second point, and this is more directly Justice Thomas, he says, look, the way to get ahead in life is not to teach young minorities, young black children, he says, that they're always victims, that nothing they do is going to matter because some kind of systematic, systematically racist system country is going to stop them, that they're always going to fail, or that anything that good that happens to them is just because of the benefits of racial preferences. He says instead, the way to get ahead is to work hard, have self-discipline, and make the most of your God-given talents. It's an extraordinary opinion, and it really is a direct response to a dissent by the new justice. The other Black justice on the court, Justice Jackson, who I regret to say uh, issued a kind of 1619 project critical race theory dissent Mm -hmm. to the case and said uh, racism explains everything, that uh, Blacks have been systematically oppressed and that the only way that uh, society can restore things is to aggressively use 
racial preferences. Hmm. Right. Uh, John, another ruling by the Supreme Court in the case of cancelling of the student debt affirmed that the power of the purse belongs to Congress. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts ruled that Congress, not the president, Congress alone has the authority to discharge $420 billion in debt owed to the United States. Uh, the Constitution gives Congress alone the power to decide whether to collect or forgive it. And the court even reminded Biden that former Speaker Nancy Pelosi had conceded exactly that. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts said, The question here is not whether something should be done. It is who has the authority to do it. And you brought up a good point here in your article. You say, progressives obsess about voting rights, yet they bend every muscle to transfer policy-making power from elected representatives to unelected judges and bureaucrats. Uh, John, you wrote extensively about a non-delegation doctrine intended to prevent Congress from delegating or transferring its legislative responsibilities to the president or the agencies of the executive branch. John, what needs to happen for a non-delegation doctrine to be enforced, I mean, to be complied with? Yeah, it's a great question, Natasha. And again, at two points. One is this case is similar to the other ones we just talked about, the Harvard case, 303 Creative. And then again, the court's reaffirming a simple, clear principle that I think most Americans will understand and agree with. If the first one was the government can't force you to speak, if the second one is the Constitution is colorblind, the third one here is Congress controls the purse. It's very simple. Only Congress can decide whether we're going to spend as a country $500 billion. And there were some estimates, actually, the costs of the cancellation go up to almost a trillion dollars. It's a fundamental principle of our Constitution that our elected representatives, who we vote for every two years, are the ones who make that fundamental decision over major spending, over major laws that affect society and the economy. And I think most Americans will agree with that if they don't already, once they understand the principle at stake. Second point, Natasha, and it really goes to your question about what's to come. And so if you think about conservatives in the law, we've really achieved two of the most important goals we saw. One was the overturn of Roe versus Wade. The second one was overturning racial preferences. Looking forward is where uh, your question comes. What is this court going to do now? Mm. And I think one of the most important areas that it's going to work on is constraining the federal government within its proper bounds and also preventing excessive power being placed in the hands of unelected and unaccountable bureaucrats and experts. You can see that clearly. Even the Harvard case, the chief justice's majority opinion says, we're not going to just take on faith the word of college presidents that they must have racial diversity. We don't, we don't trust you anymore. And I think in this case too, you see this and other cases where the court has said, we're not going to trust agencies and experts anymore. Just take it on faith or defer to them. So, for the non-delegation doctrine, we want to see if if great power is going to be exercised by the agencies, we want to see proof and clear language that Congress really wanted to transfer that power to the agencies. I think that's going to be a severe setback to a lot of the broad exercises of power you're seeing exercised now or being claimed by the Biden administration, for example, to try to regulate all the energy in the country based on concerns about global warming. And that's just... I think that will be uh, the future 
for this Supreme Court will be exactly that fight. Mm. John, in published reports, we found U.S. District Court Judge Terry Doughty ordered an injunction on Independence Day to prevent White House officials and federal agencies from meeting with tech companies about social media censorship, arguing past actions likely violated the Constitution. And the block is part of a U.S. District Judge Terry Doughty's decision in a case from 2022 in which the Attorneys General of Louisiana and Missouri sued. The plaintiffs said the federal government was too aggressive in pushing media companies to address content that could have driven vaccine hesitancy or affected elections. And Judge Doughty wrote, and I quote, during the COVID-19 pandemic, a period perhaps best characterized by widespread doubt and uncertainty, the United States government seems to have assumed a role similar to an Orwellian Ministry of Truth, unquote. And John, certainly this is another blow to the Biden administration and its approach to the, you know, to being the arbiter of truth and to silence dissenting voices. And John, what are the lessons learned from the administrative state's coercive powers as revealed through discovery? And what steps should be taken by members of Congress and our fellow Americans to ensure that big government and large corporate social media platforms do not suppress free speech? This is a really important issue. I'm glad you've raised it. If we were talking just a second ago about what's lies in the, what lies in the future for the Supreme Court, the other area I think is clearly coming down the road is how are we going to adapt our principles of free speech, freedom of conscience, limits on the government to the world of high technology and social media and AI? Obviously, this is something the founders never thought of or could have anticipated, but they gave us some clear, bright principles. And one of them is when the government gets involved with regulating speech, it cannot pick and choose amongst particular viewpoints or content that it agrees with or disagrees with. At best, it can regulate the time, place, and manner of speech, for example, like what time a parade can be held and so on. And so if this district judge's decision and findings a fact get upheld on appeal. This could be devastating both for the government, the Biden administration, and big tech companies. Because so far, we've left as a society, I think, and the law have left big tech companies alone. They have, they've admitted that they've censored certain forms of speech. For example, they censored uh, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya at the Hoover Institution, who raised doubts about lockdowns, or Scott Atlas, also at the Hoover Institution, my colleagues there who raised doubts about the lockdowns. Generally, we've left the the big tech companies alone because they're like private businesses. And as I was saying before, with our 303 creative case, the government can't force you to speak. It can't stop you from deciding what to say. So private businesses could choose to not carry messages they disagree with. But But if they are cooperating with the government, they are working with the government to decide what speech to suppress, if they're working with the government to decide whom to censor, then I think they fall under the First Amendment. And then they are like the government in 303 Creative. And then big tech can't censor speech. They can't kick off, say, conservatives or liberals because they agree or disagree with their message because they're working hand in glove with the government. The other people who suffer is the Biden administration. What business is it of theirs to try to censor what people are saying 
on social media websites. I think that there should be not just lawsuits. I think this is the time for Congress to get involved, hold oversight hearings, and have an investigation into exactly what the Biden administration has been up to. I think this is something the American people must know and hold the government account if indeed it has been cooperating with the big tech companies to intervene and censor speech. I mean, and that's happening in the freest country of the world. And so much collusion there is in other countries that they are exploiting. I mean, governments, foreign corrupt governments are exploiting the situation with the social media companies. Yes, I, I think that the incredible thing, I will, one reason it's happening here uh, is because this is where the companies are. And, and, and that's actually the, the good thing about our, our policy in the past with tech companies is that the government really did, you know, have a relatively hands-off attitude and let them develop their own way. And I think that's why right, the big tech companies are all in the United States. It's a, it's a, it's a expression of the freedoms we have. It's because government and big tech got too much into bed with each other that they've now threatened our freedoms. They're threatening the right to free speech that we all have. Uh, and it is said that it's happening in the country that is supposed to be the freest in the world, I think is the freest in the world. I think luckily we have a political system that can respond to it. I think that the House of Representatives can start investigations into it right away, and they can force the government to reveal to the American people what they've been up to, whether they have been, as a judge suspects, censoring speech, as if they have been through the guise of, you know, using Twitter or using Facebook to right, favor people they like and to attack people they dislike. That is fundamentally not the job of our government under the Constitution. And I think our system can hold the government accountable if it stepped over that line. Right. And John, in your excellent piece that we talked about published via Fox News, you applaud six justices in the majorities for these rulings. And you say, and I quote, they have endured illegal protests outside their homes from which the Biden administration refused to protect them, an assassination attempt and a vitriolic campaign funded by leftist dark money assailing their personal ethics despite the likelihood that their three decisions would trigger the same or even worse reactions, the six justices stood their ground. America owes them a debt, not only for their fidelity to the Constitution, but for their personal courage, unquote. Uh, this type of campaign undermined independent judiciary and the rule of law. Uh, John, how do we reverse this trend of undermining the rule of law, which threatens the liberty and equal justice for all Americans? I think this is one of the more long-term developments that have occurred that's been most disturbing about the court. The reason I wrote this book, right? The reason I wrote this politically incorrect guide to the Supreme Court was because people can agree or disagree with the court. I've disagreed plenty with the court over the last 25, 30 years that I've been studying it. That doesn't mean I think the court should be done away with. Doesn't mean I think the court should be subordinate to the other branches of government. Uh, what's the point of having a court, in fact, if it's just subordinated to whatever the simple majority of a passing day happens to want? The reason why the left is doing this is because the progressives think that they have the key to everything. They think they know the truth that has to be achieved, whether it's racial diversity or stopping global warming or ending, I don't know, economic inequality. 
And so what's an institution like the Supreme Court or the separation of powers or the Senate or the Electoral College? What, what are these institutions to, who are they to get away, to get in the way of achieving these, you know, goals of heaven on earth? I, it really reminds me of the socialist countries, I'm afraid to say, that lost in the Cold War. Mm. So what can we do? We can stand up for independent institutions. We can defend, I think, the separation of powers and federalism of our constitution and individual rights, especially when they lead to results we don't happen to like because the principle of the constitution mm. and the government it created over 200 years ago is more important than whether we happen to win or lose any particular battle today. And I, I worry that the extreme left doesn't see it that way. They think the goal is more important than all these institutions that have done us, done for us so well these last two centuries. I think the American people are very reasonable and would reject such an idea, just like they have rejected, I think, the idea that progressives have floated of packing the Supreme Court or adding new states like the District of Columbia uh, to the Senate or getting rid of the filibuster in the Electoral College. So I hope that people will stand up through elections, I think, and reject people who want to undo our institutions and support people instead who stand up for the Constitution. And we would certainly encourage our engaged listeners to seek out the book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court. You can certainly uh, find that copy on Amazon.com. And John, in this final moment, would you like to give our listeners an overview of your new book, The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Supreme Court? I hope people might uh, want to buy it. It's not uh, for lawyers or professional politicians. It's for everybody. And what it does is tries to introduce people to the Supreme Court as an institution, explain how it works, has little biographies of each of the current justices, but then it dives into the main controversies of the day, controversies over abortion, gun rights, religion, uh, race, many of the issues we talked about uh, today. And then it tries to point to the future and say, how can a Supreme Court, which is the exact question we just ended with, that's always under attack, how can we protect it? Our basic argument is that if the court sticks to interpreting the Constitution based on the understanding of the founders and leaves the politics and the consequences to everybody else, then it will be doing its job. And that's the best way for it to protect itself from the political fights that we're having today. And John will certainly feature the book on AmericasRT.com on America's Roundtable website so that people can go straight there and purchase the book through Amazon.com. And John, we thank you so much for your time and joining us this weekend. John Yu is a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution and professor of law at the University of California Berkeley School of Law. Thank you so much for taking time and being with us. Thank you, John. No, thank you. It's great being with you again. This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lan and Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Sardorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. 
AmericasRT.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at AmericasRT. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, AmericasRT.com. 